0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Jonathan Haidt, uh, author of the uh, books like Coddling of the American Mind, The Happiness uh, Hypothesis, The the Righteous Mind, uh, and currently a a professor at NYU Stern. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Uh, Hello, Eric.
0: Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Very pleased to be with you.
0: Jonathan, one of the things you're thinking about a lot, and you just published a a piece in the Atlantic about, is is social media. And uh, you're, you're, you know, a student of Of history and technology so you know that anytime a new technology uh, comes out, everyone hates it right away. And so knowing this, you're still a critique uh, or critic of social media. I'm curious, outline the case. What are the problems with with social media? And are they temporary problems that we'll Mm -hmm. fix within the next few years? Or are these, you know, really lasting issues we have to deal with?
1: Yes, yeah, so it's always good to start with with, uh, with skepticism. Um, our species is prone to moral panics. Um, we all, uh, you know, if we, if we give some deep emotional message, people resonate to it more. <clears throat> um, and you're right, there has been a moral panic to whatever technology the young are using. Um, I used to teach at the University of Virginia. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a big fan of reading and of novels, and he had to deal with the fact that this new form novels was said to incite the passions and desires of young women in particular. So, um, by all means, we have to have a high bar here and not just say, oh my God, the kids, what are they doing? Uh, And, you know, the research on the effects of television and video games generally didn't show much of a problem. So you're right, let's be skeptical. Um, uh, But there are two main problems I wanna focus on. So first, let's be really clear here. Um, I love technology. I mean, I totally love it. I always have Um, the internet. It ranks up there with fire and electricity, and of course, fire's done some bad things, and electricity's done some bad things, and the internet's done some bad things. But the balance, the balance of benefits from the internet, um, from smartphone, well internet for sure—from uh, smartphones, um, iPhones, I think is clearly positive. And and so, if we're talking about that, now we're talking about the the same things we've had before. So when the automobile when the automobile came out, there were no stop signs, there were no laws. And, you know, people got hurt and then gradually we adapted and we got laws and stop signs and driver's licenses and maybe this will be like that. So if we're talking about tech or the internet, then I'm not afraid. I I think we all have to just think clearly about this and, and look for ways to optimize. My focus is entirely on one subset of tech and that is social media and more specifically social media that allows people to get uh, word out very, very quickly um, on platforms that have ways of quantifying reach or popularity. That's the problem for teenage mental health, and that's the problem for democracy. So if we could go back to the internet as it was in 2005 or so, when social media was just, you know, hey, you know, MySpace and the Facebook and look at me, I, here are the bands that I like. You know, that's not toxic, that's not toxic for teenagers, that's not toxic for democracy. Um, what I, the the, the the suspicion, the fear that's been lurking, looming in me since about 2015 when it was clear, things are really weird, things are really messed up in ways that I can't explain. Um, I, I I feel like um, by by working with Tobias Rose Stockwell, my co-author on The Atlantic article um, I think we really were able to narrow in on what what it is and it is the way that social media changed between 2009 and 2013 That's the thing that alarms me that's what I'd like us to focus on
0: let's talk about that, that that's the rise of the newsfeed.
1: It's three things so it's um, it's the like button um, which is the most pervasive, and most important thing when we look at teenage mental health, just the everything is now quantified. Um, and it's the retweet button, um, which is particularly important for the democracy problems, less so for teenage mental health. Um, and it's the algorithmicizing the news feed, which as I understand it goes back before that period. Um, and I uh, just, I talked with Adam Mosseri and he told me that actually around 2009, they de-algorithmicized things for a while. But the point is that by 2010, 2011, uh, things were much more algorithmicized, and now they had huge amounts of extra information, namely likes, to go on. So yes, it's the way that social media transformed from just a way to say, "Look at me, here's my address book, essentially, and here are the things I like," to a way of putting things out that makes everybody into a brand manager.
0: Basically, your argument is that it takes the it amplifies sort of the worst characteristics of of human nature um, in a way that we can't really protect ourselves from. I'm curious to connect us to your idea of fragility and anti-fragility. And in the same way that we were, you know, 20 years ago, trying to protect our kids from, you know, physical violence outside, do you worry in 20 years if we, like, is, is this making us stronger by, uh, by facing social media early? Or is it, how do you think about anti-fragility? Yeah.
1: So the fundamental fact, the reason why I don't think this is a moral panic like others is that this time there's incredibly clear and consistent data across countries that right around 2012 plus or minus one or two years, um, curves start shooting up, upwards. And I don't mean all mental health, it's not like Gen Z, so Gen Z we're talking about, kids born in 1996 and later. And you, know, you might think, oh, they're just all hypochondriacs, they just love to talk about mental illness uh, because they think it's cool or because they've been encouraged to, but it's not a real thing, it's just that they're, com- no, no, that is not what's happening, um, because for three reasons. One, um, it's, it's not just the self-report measures, um, it's uh, suicide and it's self harm, and they show the very same curves um, uh, that we see for for self reported data on depression. That's one. Um, another is that it's uh, it's happening across countries, uh, and so while you could say, you know, well, why are you know why did American kids start getting so depressed at a certain time, um, you know, whatever whatever theory you want to give for why these curves are going up for behavior as well as self-report, you'd have to explain why it's happening in Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand. Now, Australia, New Zealand, I was just there last summer, they're a little bit delayed and it's not as severe, but it's happening, it's happening there too. Um, And so in every country I've looked at, it's probably not everywhere in the world, but in the developed countries, uh, certainly the English-speaking countries, it's happening at the same time in, in the same way. And the third, is that there's a real specificity to the pattern It's not just random noise that we're we're misinterpreting. It's always the young women up much more than the young men, and it's uh, whenever you have data broken down by age group, it's the 10 to 14 year old, uh, the 10 to 14 year old girls are up much more than anyone else. And so some people might say, oh, you know, it's the global financial crisis. They're worried about getting jobs. No, no, that would have hurt the millennials. It was the millennials who had their job prospects devastated. If you're Gen Z, if you're born in like, you know, say the year 2000, all you've ever known from the time you were aware of, you know, newspapers and the news, all you've ever known really is is a rising stock market and declining unemployment. So there is no other explanation that anyone can come up with for why this is global, why it affects girls the most, why it affects preteen girls the most. It's social media. At least that's what, I, you know, I don't want to overstate it. Um, I'm in a debate now. There's, we, we have to work this out in terms of evidence. I am mean, in a debate uh, a few of us on one side thinking, you know, arguing that, um, it is a causal factor; it's not just a correlation. Uh, and then there are some uh, um, some psychologists at Oxford, uh, um, uh, Shibley and Orbin in particular, um, who are arguing that the effects are tiny. So you know that that'll get worked out over the next year or two. But that's where we are. I, I, it's again, it's not tech; it's social media. So just to be clear, what I think is going on with the with the kids um, is that uh, the chronic social comparison. Um, the fact that everyone's life looks better than yours, the fact that um, boys' aggression is physical, so it doesn't get ramped up by going online, whereas girls' aggression is relational, and so social media really ramps that up. Um, So for a lot of reasons, uh, uh, Gen Z is coming up fragile, anxious. um, They think words are violence. They easily buy into notions of safetyism. So all that stuff. Now, to be clear, Gen Z bears no blame whatsoever for the mess this country is in. I mean, uh, uh, us older generations, we messed it up. Um, And we were messing it up before social media. The rise of polarization uh, is often dated to the rise of um, cable TV. Uh, And so, you know, there there were a lot of factors that made the mid to late 20th century very low on polarization. And um, you think about in terms of centrifugal forces blowing America outward and centripetal forces pulling us in uh, you know, coming off of, of World War II and, and then having the, the Cold War. And for a lot of reasons, America was at its peak of cohesion in the mid to late 20th century. 1968 was an explosive year. There were a lot of centrifugal forces there. But the centripetal forces were so strong throughout that period. We can trace uh, the rise of, uh, of, of cross-partisan hatred uh, of, of mass polarization to the 1980s with cable TV because we go from broadcasting, which is good for democracy, we're all on the same page, to narrow casting cable TV. So that starts the process. And as I see it, again, I'm not a political scientist. You know, I get some pushback on this from from people on the right, but as I see it, cable TV really affected the right. They were able to master the form. They had a lot of shows that really, um, uh, there's a book called The Outrage Industry uh, by um, Sarah Sobieraj and somebody else, I forget the author. So the right really mastered it. The left never really mastered the form. They couldn't get shows that really mattered. So I think the right begins to radicalize in the '90s, especially from Fox, uh,
0: cable TV and then Fox News. What led to their radicalization? Terrorism? Or fear of terrorism? Or no,
1: no. It's just um, so there's um, so you have elite polarization comes first. So uh, if you look at Congress, we get we get sorting into left. So we used to have liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats for a variety of reasons. You know, Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act, all sorts of things. The parties. Purifies so that by the 90s, all the liberals are in one party, all the conservatives are in another. But the people aren't polarized yet. The people don't hate each other yet. But the but the leaders, the Congress people, and in the media, we get much more elite polarization in the 90s. And Tech has. Nothing to do with this other than cable TV. Um, but in the early 2000s, we start to see the rise of mass polarization. And if you look, especially Pew has really good data on this, Gallup does too. If you look at what people think of the people on the other side or of the party on the other side, they actually didn't hate the people on the other side until the late 90s, or early 2000s. That's when it starts. And the lines begin going up sort of in the very early stage of social media. I don't think it was responsible then. But after 2012, after this period we're talking about, where um, we've essentially built an outrage machine, that's where the media, the mainstream media and social media are locked in, a, in an embrace. They can't escape each other. They're locked together in ways that speed up the news cycle, speed up polarization, make us vulnerable to fake news. So um, so, so th- that's the basic facts about rising polarization. Now, the reason why that's so important for everything else is that As long as we hate each other, our passions drive our reasoning. So when we have really strong cross-partisan hatred, we'll believe anything. We'll believe anything the Russians give us. And it turns out the Russians didn't even need to give us crap. They didn't even need to give us lies. Um, We were happy to circulate them ourselves. They they didn't need to create the bots. We were the bots, effectively. So um, that's the the big picture story. We can zoom in on social media's role, but the big picture story is that uh, in the 1990s, it looked like democracy was not just stable; it was inevitable. Do you remember the period where we thought this was the end of history? They, you know, let's just wait for North Korea and Iran to get rich, and then there will be liberal democracies too. And, and now we know that's not true.
0: Yeah, I, I want to get to what Facebook can do about it, but for, on that on that polarization topic, when did some of, or sort of when did the illiberal left start forming as sort of a, or start populating?
1: Yeah. Um, so there've always been illiberals on both sides. So the right has always had its John Birchers and its neo-Nazis. And that was always a, an argument you could see very visibly on, on the right. Um, and, um, uh, you know, at National Review, you know, uh, you know, they kind of pushed out the, the extreme, but they were always there. Um, and, you know, on the left, there's always been an illiberal left. Uh, it was attracted to totalitarian uh, communism. Um, but the sort of the broad center left, which is where most people in journalism and the academy were throughout my life, uh, you know, when I was in grad school in the 90s, um, you know, like almost everybody's on the left, but it's sort of, you know, we're all like l- liberals, not illiberal. Um, and there was always, you know, there was always like the the illiberals, but they were always over in like the, you know, the gender studies and race studies departments. There were, there were views there that were more activist and not really interested in, um, you know, sort of, you know, th- th- like John Stuart Mill, liberal society, people should be free to live the lives they want and we need. Viewpoint diversity. We need to be able to talk to each other. That sort of liberal consensus, sort of a left liberal consensus, uh, is what dominated elite institutions for a very long time. I'd say up until 2014, really, or 2015. And um, and then what what happens in universities um, is that around 2015, this wave of this this new morality comes crashing through, and and we were totally taken by surprise. Um, It it wasn't driven by the faculty in this case, it was driven by the students. Uh, And Greg Lukianoff was the first to diagnose it. Uh, My friend, Greg, who runs the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He was the, because he's working on college campuses, defending free speech rights of students. And for the first time in 2014, he sees college students asking for protection from words and books and speakers. Um, So he comes to me with this idea that somehow we're teaching students the very same cognitive distortions that Greg had learned to not do. So Greg and I first thought, our first hypothesis, which was wrong, was that colleges were somehow teaching students to think in these distorted ways. Our second hypothesis, so that's what we wrote up in our Atlantic article in 2015. And right after it came out, everything blew up. Um, Greg saw this in 2014, but it was at Halloween 2015 at Yale. That was the spark, but it then goes national. All the protests, the demands for safe spaces, trigger warnings, bias response teams, all the crazy stories of you know, professors being shouted down and and speakers being shouted. All that comes in a tidal wave in 2015 to 2017. Um, so, our, but it was only after that that we realized uh, in 2017 when Jean Twenge's book, iGen, came out, uh, then we could, be, for the first time, really see the data on mental health and see, oh my God, something really happened to kids born after 1996, hugely high rates of depression, anxiety, fragility, and they arrived on campus in 2014. So our second hypothesis was it wasn't that colleges caused this. It was that the tidal wave of Gen Z anxiety and depression and frailty came to us on campus in 2014, 2015. And uh, that's why it happened It, it happened nationally. Um, so yeah, colleges so college- caused it, something in about, about American childhood did. And that's where I started getting interested in the role of social media. Uh, but even that hypothesis, it turns out, wasn't entirely true. I think it is true. But... There's a big piece missing, which is a lot of other institutions began to go haywire around the same time. And this is before Trump is elected. And that's the point of my Atlantic article with Tobias, um, which is that social media created this outrage machine, which greatly amplified the voices of the illiberal left and the illiberal right. So the fact that we have Nazis, actual Nazis—I mean, they were always there. You know, there are not many of them, but suddenly, you know, a few, a few hundred or a couple thousand young men can become this national and global issue. Um, America is, is absolutely not an anti-Semitic country. I'm Jewish. I've, I've, I, I love this country. I've seen the data. Um, Jews are the most popular religious group in the country, and it's just going up and up and up for all religious groups. We're not a, a, a an anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim country on on average, but the outrage machine amplifies the voice of the small minority that are, that really are anti-Semitic or anti-Islamic or homophobic, et cetera. Um, So um, our politics goes haywire. Um, uh, News media goes haywire. Talk to people in newsrooms. Uh, The dynamics are really changing in the last few years. So social media has changed the basic connective tissue of society uh, in ways that you know, while we might adapt to it, I, I think the change is so fast and so pervasive, and our democracy is now so fragile that I, I think we really have to consider the the real possibility of catastrophic collapse, collapse, catastrophic political collapse in this country in the next ten or fifteen years.
0: And are you optimistic that Facebook can do anything about this? Is it as fundamental as they have to change their business model? I think that's what Devias uh, I've spoken to him a couple times. You might say, or what 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 needs to happen here, or what it, what's possible.
1: Yeah, Um, so I think, so look, I know a lot of people who work at Facebook. I've spoken there a few times. I've spoken to a bunch of people at Facebook. I think it's a company full of idealistic people. This is not a story about bad people, Um, but I think it is a story about a business model in which we are not the customers, we are the product. And so the incentives are such that the things that would really help are things that would probably cut into their revenue. Um, You know, One of the most important things I think we have to do is we must require some sort of identity authentication to let people open an account. Um, I think it should be to open any account. Um, Tobias thinks it maybe we could get by with just opening an account that can reach more than, you know, 100 people or something. Um, But the age where anyone can just get in a car and drive without a license, I think that age is over. Um, I think that um, social media where anybody can get, can open a thousand accounts and make death threats and rape threats. Uh, They can interfere with other countries' elections they can shame people. They can bully people. I think that age needs to come to an end. And um, for that to come to an end, that means we have to have some sort of identity authentication. I'm not saying not you need saying it, yeah. driver's licenses to Facebook. There, could be a th- there should be probably a third-party nonprofit, I don't know what it would be, uh, where you have to show some form of identification. And I understand that wouldn't work for the whole world. I think we're past the point. I think it's clear. We can't all be on one platform. What they need in Myanmar or Egypt is not what we need here. And I think if we all try to stay on one platform with the lowest possible level of verification, then I think democracies are going to die. And I think ours may be one of them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It it makes me think a couple things. One is this idea of, um, you you brought up uh, John Stuart Mill earlier, Uh, you're a huge fan of him. Um, He has this idea, the harm principle, right, Uh, which is uh, act as such that you aren't causing harm to anybody. And today we use you know, speech as harm, or we treat speech as violence, um, and that's sort of a big, big evolution. But I wonder if, I mean, Robert Wright also has his book, Non-Zero, which I, I believe you, you've read. Oh, I
1: love that book, yes. Yeah,
0: and uh, I'm curious, what, what, you, what you took it from that book, one of the things I, I took from that book is that you know, we're more interconnected than ever, and thus our, our actions influence other people more than ever, and the way that, where that's more clearly, clear seen is the environment. Like, John Stuart Mill wasn't thinking about climate change. Right, um, right. And so is it how do you think about this idea of the harm principle as it's evolved over time obviously it's not you know my speech isn't directly causing harm to you necessarily as as people might lead it yeah, to believe yeah. but how do you think about the evolving sure, idea sure.
1: of harm So basic, yeah so the basic principle here is that the liberal tradition and you know I mean like the you know the you know liberal democracy tradition the you know the, the liberal tradition of the west over the last few hundred years is an extraordinary move towards individual liberty um, away from be it religious uh, you know totalitarianism or, or any kind of totalitarianism and in America more than in Europe we we extend that to economic freedom economic liberty we think that if somebody invents a company and people want to buy that company's products in general the government should stay away unless there's clear harm to third parties that's one of the major needs for regulation is as to is to Uh, prevent uh, or price in harmful externalities to others. So I think that in general, the harm principle, you know, the idea that we don't regulate, we don't stop people from doing things unless it's clear that they're harming others. uh, That's a very solid principle. And we don't necessarily just take people's word for it. So if people say speech is violence, I'm harmed by it. As Mill said, you know, they always say that, they always claim that, that's not enough. Uh, but when we start to see the data on this extraordinary epidemic of depression anxiety, and to be clear, the suicide rate, um, the suicide rate is up for all, just almost all ages for both sexes, um, but it's up, you know, in the round range of like 20 to 30 percent for most age groups. Um, it's up uh, 60 or 70, no, 70 or 80 percent for, for older teen girls. It's up 150 percent for preteen girls. So this is not like we're saying like, oh, gee, maybe it's up a little bit. No, it's, it's like you know, more than doubled uh, for preteen girls. Um, this is big. A lot of people are dying. And I think actually the Facebook in particular or an Instagram, um, I think they are particularly vulnerable to a gigantic class action lawsuit if it can be shown, it, you know, it's not conclusive yet, but if it is conclusively shown that underage use uh, is harmful more so than adult use. And since they seem to make very little effort to keep people off, um, I do think they're exposing themselves to a gigantic class action lawsuit in the 2020s. So back to the harm principle: um, if it's clear that um, you know, 11, 12 year old girls on Instagram become much more anxious, and 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 see themselves as inferior, and and see their lives as less less good, and see themselves as less beautiful, and therefore uh, are anxious, and to relieve that anxiety they cut themselves, and sometimes they kill themselves. Um, you know, this is. This is this pretty clearly qualifies for John Stuart Mill's harm principle. So um, I do think that um, I do think that the major platforms will have to be forced to deal with underage use. It's not enough. You know, they've told me various people, say, oh, you know, when we know it's underage, we always kick them off. Yeah, I'm so, you know, I never curse, but in this case, I will. Bullshit. Complete, total bullshit. Um, my son, when he entered, my my daughter's in fifth grade. Um, her girlfriend started getting Instagram in fourth grade. Uh, in fifth grade, now it's much more common. My son, when he entered sixth grade, um, he said, everybody but me has Instagram. Uh, everybody just lies, and nobody gets kicked off. So, um, so yeah, I think the changes that have to be made about identity verification, age verification, that's the only way to keep underage kids off. That, I think, would be the biggest thing we could do to address the mental health crisis uh, of it's teenagers just, around the world. And, yeah, that's going to be very costly. That's going to, um, you know, that would probably, I don't know what the numbers are. That would probably cut the number of people in half. Yeah. have accounts
0: and when we compare this to sort of the the you know complaints around microaggressions or speeches violence in colleges is sort of the main difference that age basically like when you're a teenager you can't really you know fend for yourself in the same way that when you're a college student you know van jones we want you to be strong put up mm-hmm. your boots et cetera is that the sort of the main difference
1: well um no everybody's anti-fragile and you know and if some of your listeners have heard me speak before they're probably sick of this but it, it is the most important concept um out there in terms of the psychology of what's happening and the basic idea just being that we're just like, you know, the immune system is anti-fragile. If you protect it from dirt, germs, and, you know, bacteria, it can't grow strong. It needs exposure to grow strong. Kids need to be teased. They need to be excluded. They need to experience stress, not long-term stress, but lots of short-term stress. And if we protect them from that, we're not helping them We're hurting them. And so I often get the question when I speak, okay, Heights, you're saying we need to stop protecting our kids. We need to send them out and they let them get hurt. But then you say, we should protect them from social media. Why can't they go out on social media and, and get hurt? Um, to which I say, in theory, you're right. And, and that makes a certain sense from a distance. Uh, but it turns, out, it turns out that being shamed on social media is nothing like falling down on a playground and skinning your knee. And um, you know, we can't escape our biologicality we're not virtual creatures. We're physical creatures who who need to develop face-to-face skills, conflict negotiation skills, and doing it virtually doesn't seem to help. Um, When I speak to audiences of Gen Z, I always ask them, overall, do you think that being on social media early, as most of you were, being on it early and being publicly shamed or humiliated and having those bad experiences, did it make you stronger or did it make you more afraid? Did it make you more fearful, more self-censoring? Did it, you know, and the overwhelming response is that it made them more fearful, more self censoring Being shamed on social media is not at all like experiencing negative events in the physical world. It's, it's just kids, 10, 11, 12-year-old kids are just not ready for it. Middle school is the hardest part of life, and social media has made it 10 times harder.
0: And it makes me think two things. One is this idea we're supposed to be in this age of the sovereign individual where we have the most freedom possible, and yet when it comes to psychological sovereignty, we're also the most targeted and have least freedom in, in, in some ways. Um, yeah,
1: no, I, you know, I I think that's right. There are a lot of paradoxes here. And I just really want to draw a line at the age of eighteen that is, if we're talking about adults making choices, we can lament that they're giving up their sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. And these are the kind of debates that people have been talking about for you know for decades, and you know amusing ourselves to death on television. So if we're talking about adults, you'd really have to show clear evidence of harm, and the presumption and, and the burden of proof is on those who want to show harm. But when we're talking about kids and teenagers, those who are under 18, we have to be a lot more protective. Um, The evidence is overwhelming that there is an epidemic of anxiety and depression. Nobody doubts that. I've I've had no pushback on that. Um, If listeners go to thecoddling.com, and then click on solutions, better mental health. I've got two open source lit reviews there. There's no dispute about the tidal wave of depression, anxiety. And I think the evidence is increasingly clear that social media plays a causal role. It's not just correlation. It's causal. causal although, yeah. although there it's not hundred percent certain. Um, but um, I think we need to really be focusing on, on protecting um, teenagers.
0: Totally. And, and there's a broader question too, in terms of institutional design, whether it's social media or otherwise, when do you sort of, uh, designed for the constraints of our evolutionary, uh, you know, flaws and foibles versus sort of ask us to overcome them. You know, we used to, like, we used to enjoy yeah. public hangings and now we have laws laws against them or, you know, yeah. we have nation states. I'm not sure if that's, you know, natural to develop at that scale. H- how do you think about sort of institutional design as it relates to our evolutionary constraints, but also our ability to overcome those constraints?
1: Oh, that's a, yeah, boy, the public hangings, that's a great one. Because, no, you're absolutely right. Our, you know, as I, I in the righteous mind, I, I, really focus on how we evolve for s- small-scale tribalism, intergroup conflict, religious ritual, and public hangings and floggings are, are great fun. People have always loved them. Um, and eventually we decided, or rather, there is a kind of a moral progress about dignity of the individual. And and even if the masses love a public hanging, um, society evolves so that many people say, well, this, this is inhuman, inhumane. Uh, and so I think... When you have um, when you have strong market incentives to grab eyeballs, when you have an attention economy and, and attention is money, well then it's quite clear, you know, as well, I'm I'm actually friends with Nir Ayala. He and I are good friends even though we don't see eye to eye on this, but I think his book Hooked was really all about how do you exploit those um those evolved vulnerabilities. And now his new book, Indistractable, I think is a really nice correction to that. Um but um from, you know, from a free market perspective, the competition, you know, is to exploit those vulnerabilities. And so we have to have a combination of regulation and um, it's just sort of evolving social norms and moral progress. Um, again, when we're talking about kids, the exploitation, you know, like we don't allow slot machines in school. So we just wouldn't do that. But we do allow them to bring in their phones. And I don't okay. think we should be doing that.
0: I want to go back to some of the related topics around polarization and activism. You've you spoken and written a lot about what's, what's happening on college campuses. You, you did this interview with Jordan Peterson. He has sort of had this offhand comment I want to dig into, which was basically, or you, you meant, you've mentioned that sort of uh, the activism sort of mirrors sort of a fundamentalism in some ways. And I'm curious, he, he had this offhand comment about when you, re, you know, are, were declining in religious um, you know, practice and basically has has politics replaced religion <laughs> in, in terms of our identity, meaning, and, and sort of the tribal nature with which we bring to it?
1: Yes, I think that's exactly what has happened. So we evolved for um, small-scale religion, and that means we make something sacred. And typically it's a rock or a tree or an ancestor, um, uh, an animal, uh, and that becomes a totem or a, you know, or a god. Uh, and then we circle around it, and we have rituals, and we have taboos words we can't say, um, animals that we can't eat depending on what clan you're in. This is normal evolved human religion. We didn't evolve for gigantic monotheistic religions. Um, those were cultural evolutions that kind of hacked into our tribalism and were able to scale up much larger communities. Um, so we had a period of a few thousand years where we left the small-scale religion behind and most people in, in, the, in, in the developed world were members of large-scale moralistic, monotheistic religions, um, or, or in India, not monotheistic. So that was a period of a few thousand years, and I think that period might be ending now. Uh, our brains haven't changed. We still have religious brains, and we now have a competition among meaning systems to to jack into those brains, and whichever ones tap into them or jack into them and hook them up get to keep them. and And so I think we're seeing the rise of of these really, truly religious practices. And just the metaphors are are revealing. Um, On the far right, they talk about being red-pilled and the idea that I I will have an awakening. I will see reality as in the matrix. And the reality, you know, is the, you know, I guess about the, you know, the crazy leftists and and all that. Um, And, you know, some people who are red-pilled then actually become amenable to Nazism, neo-Nazi ideas. So... Um, so ideas about what's sacred and who, and seeing the world as a battle between good and evil, this manichean struggle, this is innate to us. By which I don't mean we have to live that way, but it's the default. It's the easy. It's easy to to get people to live that way. So it's clear on the right, but it's just as clear on the left, where the metaphor is woke. It's the same metaphor. Um, it's the idea that I I uh, have awakened. I now see things about power and privilege that most people are blind to. And I'm not denying that there's a lot about power and privilege that, that members of the majority culture don't see. So it's not that the metaphor is completely inappropriate, but what it, it, it activates, it taps into the ancient religious uh, rituals. And the clearest sign of this is blasphemy laws. So on college campuses now, before 2015, before 2015, if you were in a law class, if you were a class in law school on First Amendment and you were talking about a legal case in which the N-word was involved, the professor could say the N-word as, or could read it in a transcript. Or if you're in a literary class where there is a book in which the N-word is in the title, or if you were reading Mark Twain, you know, or anything that has the N-word, like the word could be said in class and you wouldn't be fired for it. Uh, because it's clear you're not calling someone that. Um, but once we had this, it's what's, what's now called the Great Awakening. There's now, um, we didn't know this when we wrote even the book, but um, research, a lot of research came out just like in the last year on the general social survey when it's become clear that white people on the left moved sharply to the left around 2014. Um, and again, this is exactly the period, this is in part because of the transformation of social media, white people on the left, not black people, but white people on the left go sharply far to the left on matters of race, immigration, gender. So there was a great awakening among white progressives. And w- why was it a
0: great awakening instead of a great, uh, you know, rightening or, what, you know, more traditional religion or, or some other right wing?
1: Yeah, of, because, of uh, because, because um, the, the, the re- social conservatives still had actual religion like Christianity and things like that. Um, but the left has been and Democrats have been leaving churches for a long time. In the 70s, if you knew someone went to church, you didn't necessarily know how they voted. But now, if you know someone goes to church uh, you know, every week, you know how they voted, pretty much. Um, so the left has been leaving religion rapidly since the 70s or 80s. And, but it's being replaced, I think, by quasi-religions. And I think wokeness is best understood as a, a fundamentalist religion that make, has certain sacred objects, and it has um, very severe um, blasphemy laws. So if you use certain words... Um, you you must be expelled i mean you're not going to literally be killed let's let's be clear you know the far right actually shoots people and the far right has actual you know real terrorists the far left doesn't i mean they okay we talk
0: about antifa but they're not killing people the way that the Christ the, you know, christchurch shooter is and, but, but is it fundamentally sort of i've heard it described as sort of a, a a sort of a cultural marxism or egalitarianism that instead of it used to be class based now it's race based and the goal is sort of you know equality um at using sort of race as the entry point, uh, equality of outcome?
1: Um, Well, so yes, egalitarianism is, is central to this fundamentalist religion, but it's not comprehensive egalitarianism. It's not that we should all be equal. It's focused on um, race, gender, and not so much even LGB anymore. It's T, it's it's the transgender issue is very big now. Um, So it is, it's not that equality is the end goal. It's, it's a real focus on three or four different kinds of social groups, um, and that's what the fundamentalism is. There can be no challenge, no question about it. And what that means is that is that organizations that are striving for diversity are, are in a hell of a bind because you know, diversity, if you do it right, and, and if it's done with a sense of, of humility and acceptance and tolerance, humility can bring benefits but the research on the benefits of diversity is pretty sparse. It's not, the case is not as strong as many people think. Um, The basic social science view is that diversity is by its nature divisive. People People divide at the drop of a hat and we have to work to get people to work together. So if you increase diversity and you do it right, you can get all kinds of benefits, but if you increase diversity and you don't do it right, you get just increased division and hostility. And So if you want diversity and inclusion, well, that's really hard because a lot of the ways we do diversity create diversity and conflict, eternal conflict. Um, It's not a coincidence that the institutions that get most torn apart over racism charges are not those who are conservative or places where you might think that there would be more, more actual racist things said, it's schools like Yale and Middlebury and uh, Evergreen. It's the most progressive universities that went down into torrents of, of, of racial conflict. Um, it's the most progressive religions. The Unitarians, uh, from what I hear, are now being torn apart over over these sorts of things. And I think it's the most progressive companies. So I think it's important, uh, certainly in the in the tech sector and any other place that hires from elite American colleges, it's important that you not import a a view of diversity that's going to make diversity divisive. There are a lot of wonderful people who are writing now. Um, Actually, I'll just get out my list, but like, um, you know, Irshad Manji as a book, Don't Label Me. Um, Ibu Patel has been writing beautiful and really insightful work on different kinds of diversity. Uh, One of the only, I'm incredibly pessimistic in general, but one of the few bright spots is that a lot of people who are not white males are saying this is nuts. This is completely nuts. We should not be turning people against each, each other.
0: Turning... Even in a few years, the term "woke" itself has turned from something to aspire to to something, you know, potentially even derogatory or or flip. Or flip.
1: Um, yeah, that's right. But I mean, obviously, people on the right are going to use it in a, in a derogatory way. So that just becomes a polarizing thing. Um, what's interesting to me is that is that a lot of of really of people with really impeccable progressive credentials on the left are beginning to talk about it, about how dangerous it is, both for the tr- true liberal values and more specifically for the Democrats strategically. So um, George Packer has a really powerful essay in the New Yorker, uh, or was it Atlantic, um, when the culture war comes for the kids, um, in which he, say, he points to 2014 as the year that the white progressive education establishment in Brooklyn went insane and stopped caring about the welfare of kids and became much more focused on a small set of identity issues.
0: Right. Um, and I'm, how did the institutions sort of let this happen? Like, how did the left win the culture war in such a landslide? Is it sort of, I mean, white guilt? Are there evolutionary explain, like, wh- wh- how did it sort of happen? Yeah. Me, well,
1: you know, yeah, so I think, right. So I think in many ways, it's been a Pyrrhic victory. The left absolutely has won the culture war. Um, but uh, you know and obviously you know obviously the, the the incredible transformation by which gay marriage went from unthinkable to being normal is a, is a, is a wonderful victory so i mean there's a lot of good to be said here yeah. uh, and the active you know it wouldn't have happened without activists and and people pushing so you know let me be clear that many good things have happened here but i do think in some ways it's a pyrrhic victory and if and if if donald trump is reelected it will be the ultimate pyrrhic victory um because um you know m- so my whole piece. The the piece that's really brought me into this is the necessity of viewpoint diversity for finding the truth. So I'm a social scientist. I'm a social psychologist. And I study morality and politics and some controversial stuff. And, um, you know, when I'm criticized, when when people point out flaws in my work, I I benefit. Like, I, I actually can correct myself. And people do point out flaws in my work. But if you're on the majority side if you produce work on diversity or race or gender that is pleasing people won't work very hard to find flaws in fact if there are major known flaws often nobody dares to say anything right so you can get terrible terrible work not only published but widely believed i'll just i'll give you oh my god just you know we had the most amazing recent example um you know some of you may, may have heard about so you know many of your listeners will have heard Uh, will have heard that um, when orchestras started using curtains, that caused the number of women hired to jump by 50% immediately. Now i would heard that many times and I assumed it was an experiment. I assumed that they did a controlled experiment and they found that when you put a curtain up, the number of women uh, increases and it makes total sense, you know, that there are implicit biases, like that makes total sense. But it turns out that's not at all true. It turns out this, it's all, it was based on one article that pointed out that in some year, I forget what year, there was a certain number of women in orchestras. And around then, um, orchestras started using screens. And then some number of years later, um, the number of women had increased by 50%. And there was no evidence that the screens had done anything. Um, And there was no, actually no claim that it was even 50%. It's just, the, the point is, a claim was made in the media about a diversity issue. Everyone believed it and no one even bothered to read the article. If people had simply read the article, they would have seen that that wasn't true. So my point is that when we are all on the same team, when we passionately want the same thing, we can't be trusted to do research. We just can't be trusted. Uh, Motivated reasoning is so powerful. And so your question was, how did this happen? And the answer is, if you take an institution like a university, and it would happen in the military, it could happen anywhere. If you take an institution, and you kill all the dissidents, you kill all everybody who differs, you expel them or kill them so that everybody thinks the same way. What do you think happens? Group think, and it, there's no break. There's nobody saying, um, maybe we should only go this far and no farther. Nobody can say that. People just say, okay, let's go farther. Oh, I'll raise you. Oh, I'll, you know, I'm even more radical. Right. So uh, this is what I see happening in some academic disciplines. And it may seem like a short-term victory for those who think the point is victory, but a lot of us in universities think the point is truth. And if you care about truth, if you want to get truth, you can't get that if we're all if we're all in the same team and if we shoot our dissidents.
0: Man, a, a few things here. So one, I want to go back to egalitarianism. Uh, you mentioned, you are writing a book about uh, capitalism, I believe, uh, the different stories of, of capitalism. And one thing I'm curious about, it, it's people often differentiate between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. But it yeah, seems that those are more interlinked than we like to think. Obviously, because you know, when it, it, generations happen, and then you know, people get ahead, and thus their kids have better opportunity. Is yeah, equality yeah. of opportunity just an unhelpful slogan, or what's the KPI for equality, or a metric for equality of opportunity, or how should yeah, we yeah. think about it, or is equality sort of this like virus that we should stop thinking about as more overall prosperity? How, how should we think about?
1: It? Yeah. So, um, so my own research is on moral foundations theory and and you know clearly fairness is, is a very deep moral foundation. You'll never find a human society that doesn't care a lot about fairness. And I thought about having an equality foundation, like maybe equality is this deep thing, because human beings were lived in egalitarian ways for a long time, but there's very little evidence that people care about equality of outcome. Um, as Paul Bloom has put it, Paul Bloom at Yale studying development of children, what, what he finds is that all around the world, people prefer fair inequality to unfair equality. So we don't value equality of outcome per se. What we value is fairness. And fairness is really proportionality. Um, it's the idea that people should um, get according to what they've given uh, the law of karma. If you do the time, you do the crime, do the time. So that's universal, that's very deep. And particularly in the United States, the notion of equality of opportunity is very deep, is widely accepted on, on left, on right. Everybody accepts equality of opportunity now what you're just referring to is something like the dream hoarder work by by uh, uh, richard reeves and others um, showing that simply saying well anyone's free to apply to yale you know uh, isn't enough because obviously you know members of the upper class or the upper middle class uh, have been grooming their kids for a long time so so what historically happens is the the right tends to have a relatively low bar for when they'll certify equality of opportunity like all right, Jim Crow's over, you know, no more legal discrimination, so we're all set. Um, whereas the left was said, no, wait a second, wait a second. Um, and as I guess, I think it was President Johnson said, uh, "What freedom is not enough. That, you, you, you know, if people are starting at different positions, it's not a fair race, as it were. So that's a good, healthy, normal argument for democracy to have, in which the left is going to push for more efforts to equate opportunity. That's great. And 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 you know the the uh, the Ivy League admission scandal really showed the disgusting degree to which members of the you know the elite will go to cheat to get their kids into elite schools. So we have to we have a lot of work to do there to achieve equality of opportunity. Now equality of outcome, that's something that very few people are committed to. It's a religious principle uh, in this new fundamentalist religion, and the way it's enforced is, if, oh my God, actually I can find a tweet. There was some. There was some, um, so there was a, a, an education conference in Seattle, and somebody posted a screenshot of a slide that was shown, and it basically said, if you attribute any outcome differences to anything other than systemic oppression, that's the definition of bigotry. Uh, and so the effort here is to say, um, you know, if women are underrepresented in tech, let's say, um, there could be many reasons for that, one of which can be hostile climate uh, or discrimination. Those are certainly um, likely candidates, but there are many candidates, including um, differences of interest. Um, there are very few differences of ability by sex, but there are big differences of interest. And should we consider that when we when we try to um, achieve gender fairness and gender equality um, in tech? Should we consider the pipeline? Should we consider the applicant pool? Should we consider things like that, or should we only should we start from the proposition that? any disparity is caused by systemic sexism. Well, any social scientist worth his or her salt would say, well, of course we're not going to rule explanations out of bounds a priori. Of course we're not going to. Of course we're going to look at base rates. Um, you have to look throughout the pipeline. At what, point, at what point is the base rate in the pipeline not represented in the next phase? But um, what's happening now is, is that if you suggest that there could be other causes, you can get in big trouble. And that means that we will never solve these problems. If if we're not free to think, if we're not free to examine all the causes, we will never solve these problems. Um, And so that's one of my concerns about, one of my many concerns. Um, As I see it, we have an enormous number of very serious problems, all of which are solvable, but most of which we will not solve because we can't talk straight or think straight.
0: A couple directions I want to go go to in closing. One is this idea of uh, the balance between Uh, activism and and truth-seeking, which we sort of put at different, you put at different odds, which I understand why. But um, let's say that someone today sees a great injustice, like, uh, you know, animals being slaves or animals, you know, uh, being slaughtered. Factory farming. Yes, factory farming. They they want to make a big change. And they think that, you know, uh, that the uh, principles of truth-seeking are not working. They're not leading to this change when is it justified to pursue activism? How do you think about the balance of of truth and activism?
1: The most important thing I can contribute to this discussion um, is the importance of specifying the institution. So if you're talking about people in their private lives make that decision that they don't, they're sick of studying, they want to go out and act, that's one thing, Um, but I'm talking about universities. If we look at universities, there should be certain norms. If we talk about government or Congress, there should be certain norms. there may be times when Congress people should take extraordinary efforts that break decorum. There may be times, but it should all be in the service of Congress's um, Congress's institutional obligations, duties. And I, I use, I like to use the word telos, the Greek word telos or, you know, good or purpose. In a university, our purpose is truth. Our purpose is research. And then passing on not just knowledge, but habits of thinking so that future generations can add to that knowledge. And, um, when we have departments or areas or people who are who are putting activism ahead of truth, activism and truth seeking are often incompatible. Um, then we 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 are no longer able to achieve our telos. So let's let's look at a specific example. You might a lot of the activists in 2015 pushed for bias response teams, so and microaggression training and things like that. And um, you can understand why if they think that Yale and other places are shot through with racism. You want to teach people to be less racist and you want a reporting system so that anyone who says anything racist can be reported and disciplined or punished or expelled. But social systems are complicated. And if you don't understand them and you don't think about future consequences, you tend to make things worse. So um, I don't think it's a good idea for teenagers to be activists unless they have studied a system very, very deeply. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea for anyone to say, I'm going to change this institution, not by making good arguments, but by making threats, by basically forcing the president to meet our demands because we're going to make such a stink and we're going to bring such bad attention. We're going to force the president to adopt policies um, that we want, uh, even if they don't want it. Um, now, there may be times to do that. And obviously, desegregation in the South was a time when, you, um, you know, there, was a, there were sick institutions and sick laws. But you know at a place like Yale, which is a very progressive anti-racist place I mean I went there as an undergrad in the, in the 80s um, you know to to um, demand to li- have these lists of demands for reforms when you don't understand the system, when you don't think about unintended consequences is a really bad idea. So we now have um, biased response teams at a lot of universities. well guess what we're all afraid of each other now um, we I, I can't I can't I can't address the, like the things I'm talking about with you, the things I can say here with you, I couldn't say in a classroom. Because in a classroom, if I offend a single student, if there's 300 students in the class, I offend a single student, they can report me before class is over anonymously. So that really changes the climate in ways that are now incompatible with our telos. Uh, we, if we can't talk about anything controversial, we can't do our jobs. So and that's, a case, that's a case in which I think on-campus activism has damaged the telos of the university. And an activist university is not one that deserves any sort of public subsidy. It's not one that will produce reliable research. Um, And and in the long run, it's not one that will help the Democratic Party. When when universities are seen as just the back office, the research department of the Democratic Party, then you can understand why Republican legislators cut funding a lot of there are a lot of pyrrhic victories here. There's a lot of activism for activism's sake, uh, which can often make systems worse and can backfire on the very the very goals of the activists
0: I'm um, curious to hear you talk a bit about identity and sort of the tension between you know we we are evolved for and find meaning in small tribal communities, you know a family uh, this is my you know race a religion, this is my intellectual tribe, whatever different, different tribes that we have on us and we keep you know, uh, creating, fragmenting into smaller smaller groups. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, a lot of our global problems require global cooperation, climate change, AI, nuclear Mm -hmm. proliferation. And we also have, you know, we've been consolidating into bigger nation states. How do you think about sort of, uh, and I know you have your point on common humanity identity, but practically like, you know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, for example, do you expect there to be hundreds of more, you know, Singapore's and Israel's and, you know, et cetera, Hong Kong? Or do you expect you know, uh, the empires to get bigger and bigger and us to have this sort of co- common identity?
1: I wouldn't dare make any prediction about 100 years from now, not a single one. Um, other than that, we'll be more interconnected and, and probably more prosperous. Um, but uh, beyond that, i it's very hard to make predictions. Uh, I mean, I can, you know, for the next few years, I think things are likely to continue getting worse, but I, I can't really say beyond that. But here's the thing I've been thinking about just in the last few weeks a lot. Um, when I think about, So I was born in 1963 at a time when Jim Crow was the law of the land in many states. Um, I was born uh, uh, two months after Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Um, And I look at the way the world, the the way the country was back then, uh, the extraordinary injustice, um, the, the ugliness, the violence. And then I look decade by decade, you know, from 63 to 73 to 83 to 93, decade by decade, uh, the extraordinary progress on almost every front that any progressive would care about. Um, and I remember in the 90s thinking, my God, we should all be dancing in the streets about how good the world is getting and the Cold War is over and, and we're making progress on rights for everybody. This is amazing. And so the way that I see it, I, we can sort of summarize the, the, the second half of the 20th century with this simple formulation. You know that thing that people always did where we divide people into groups and then we hate them based on based on their group membership how about if we do less of that rather than more of that and that's what my entire life has been up until 2015 that's the way everything was going doesn't mean things were perfect and we kept discovering new groups that we hadn't known, like transgender people we had you know so that's progress that's great um so i think we should be dancing in the streets saying my god things have gotten better for almost everybody so fast nobody could have guessed that things would get get this much better this fast. And then in 2015, it all turns around, not because our progress stops, but because of social media. Now we now have no connection to the average. We have no idea what the average is. What we see are the most spectacular examples of ugliness. And so even though America is increasingly uh, uh, increasingly philo-semitic, meaning increasingly liking of Jews and Muslims too, the Pew data shows where we, you know, liking of all groups has gone up. Even though the averages continue that 1963 to, you know, till now, things are getting better and better on average. But the average doesn't matter anymore. In the age of social media, we have no idea what the average is. All we know is the most, um, the most viscerally upsetting, viral, horrible example. And this enrages activists on the left. And, this, and, and then also, uh, you know, the outrages by, uh, by people on the left, um, those go around right-wing Twitter and right-wing um, um, YouTube. So we, we get the extremes being completely enraged, demanding illiberal policies to check the other side, uh, and everything's reversing. So I think that from 1963 to 2015, we made extraordinary moral progress, and now I think we're morally going backwards. Um, anytime we have less, uh, um, less due process, that's moral retrogression. Anytime we judge people more by their group, that's moral retrogression. Um, anytime we uh, we have mob violence and mob justice, that's moral retrogression. So extraordinary progress throughout my life until 2015. And in the last four years, um, I'd say we're morally worse off. Uh, America not- is a morally worse society in a lot of ways. We're going backwards. And I think, um, I think it's very dangerous for us.
0: Yeah, the reversing is really interesting. It's sort of, if you look of like, China's become much more capitalist as we become much more egalitarian. It's sort of left is right, right is left cycle. Things, yeah,
1: things are, yeah, things are certainly getting mixed up. I think this goes back to the fundamental question and the age-old questions about democracy, which the founders had. And so here, I guess, you know, let, let's just leave it with this. Let me see if I can find some of the quotes. So I think everybody should go back and read Federalist 10, which is Madison's meditation uh, on the dangers of democracy. And Madison um, talks about how he writes such democracies, here he means direct democracies, have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. And the American experiment was to give democracy one more try. It was to say, maybe if we get it just right, if we tweak things, if we don't really have a democracy, if we have a republic with democratic features, we don't want the people to vote on policies, we want them to vote on the people who will make the policies. They put in all kinds of checks and balances, all kinds of ways of slowing things down. And Madison, and this is really the quote that launched the Atlantic article, um, Madison meditates on how um, a small republic, a small, I'm sorry, small, you know, a small polity um, has certain advantages, But it's always ultimately dies because of faction. It always is torn apart by faction, by by teams that care only about fighting the other team. They don't care about the common good. And he says, but a very large republic, on the other hand, has a certain advantage. It's so big that if Uh, a spark, if if, if a fire starts in one part, it can't spread throughout the many states. It'll take so long for the news even just to reach. From Georgia to Massachusetts. So, you know, being really big, we're less likely to burn down. And um, he says, the "The influence of factious leaders may kindle a flame within their particular states, but will be unable to spread a general conflagration through the other states. And obviously, in the age of social media, that's completely false. It's been so all of Madison, all of the founding fathers tinkering so that we could actually make this experiment work and get democracy to work where it had not worked before. And boy, did it work for a couple hundred years, not perfectly, but no system is perfect. Um, um, Now I think it's falling apart. I think democracy, I wouldn't say it's doomed, but I would say its prospects are much darker than they were five years ago, while authoritarian capitalism's prospects are much brighter, certainly than they were 15, 20 years ago. and at developing countries that used to all ape the United States, they used to all want a constitution like the United States, they're laughing at us now. They don't want what we have. They want what China has. So I do think that, uh, again, technology is great. In general, connecting people is great. Um, I love my iPhone, but I think that social media has connected us in ways that it's not just that it's too much. It's that it's in ways that encourage moral grandstanding, showing off, sensationalism, dishonesty, preference falsification, and democracy was always fragile. And I think social media has changed so many parameters that it now might be um, um, unworkable. Um, I would never. It's always been wrong to bet against the United States, so I'm not betting against us. But I think the odds of catastrophic collapse, of political collapse, within 15 years when Gen Z uh, becomes the you know the major Uh, the the, the largest generation, Gen Z, which has so many problems with conflict and and with working together across lines of division. Um, I think we could be in very, very big trouble. And I do think that major changes to social media, I can't guarantee that they would save us, but I think that they would help. And I think it's necessary to make those changes.
0: It's a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been Jonathan Haidt. If, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please read The Coddling of the American Mind and uh, go to uh, heteroxacademy.org where he uh, deals with a lot of the issues going on on campus. Uh, and um, Any other plugs for things you have upcoming where people can learn more?
1: Oh, yeah, depending on people's interests. If you have kids and you want to raise them to be stronger uh, and, and more resilient, uh, go to letgrow.org. Um, if you're having conflict in your own company uh, conflict, especially if it's over words and phrases and, and things that, um, uh, 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 things that you, you, you think should, people should be able to settle um, on their own, you um, go to openmindplatform.org. It's a program we've created to help um, resolve conflicts over all kinds of differences. And if you care about the state of universities, if you if you want our universities to create people who can think for themselves and, and, and who can welcome differing viewpoints um, go to or please consider supporting heterodoxacademy.org um, um, we're, we're, we're not trying to help any particular side in the political debate, we're trying to help universities universities need viewpoint diversity and norms of civil discourse, that's what we're trying to restore um, so wow well, Eric, well thanks for giving me the chance to, to, to vent and, 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 and think about these things and, and, and
0: talk with, with your audience it's been a fascinating episode, Th- thank you very much John